0: Well, medical assistance in dying became legal in this country in 2016. There were further amendments passed in 2021 that broadened who could request the procedure. Another change allowing people with mental disorders to access assisted dying is set to go into effect in March of next year. Now, according to polls, the majority of Canadians do support access to doctor-assisted suicide. And the system continues, all told, to function pretty well uh, in the majority of cases, I'm told. But the kind of example we pointed out in the last half hour does raise and highlight some growing concerns around the impact of making it available as an option for those suffering from inadequate care or other issues that are more about quality of life. It's a complex issue. There are absolutely no simple answers, but joining me now to help tackle some of them is bioethicist Carrie Bowman. He's an assistant professor in the Faculty of Medicine at the University of Toronto. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks for uh, for talking to us about this important issue.
1: Happy to do so, Ben.
0: Just your reaction to this story, the one we've been talking about, uh, where it appears a Canadian military veteran was offered, uh, you know, advice on medical assistance in dying unsolicited. Uh, and that's obviously caused some issues, but this is not a new, this is this is not a new issue. Um, but what was your reaction when you saw that story?
1: Yeah. You know, one of horror, to be honest with you, um, you know, a, a Canadian veteran and someone who's living with, uh, the effects of a brain injury is is really now look if the person asked and the person said you know I'm Canadian and I, what is this and how does it work that's a different story but as you said clearly in your intro unsolicited you know this is a vulnerable person and you know it, it's very it can be very hard to distinguish when you have any kind of professional as, as to what is an option and what is a recommendation. And it could easily be seen as a recommendation. So, so people that are living you know, with depression, anxiety, and you know, brain trauma, I have seen brain trauma directly working in hospitals and I've seen it with veterans as well. This is a serious situation. And I, I feel it's utterly inappropriate to be raising this unsolicited. Now, again, if the person said, you know, what are my options uh, with medical assistance in dying? That's a fair question. And there may be no options. I don't know. I don't know this. I don't know the case. But, you know, you would have an obligation uh, to answer those questions, assuming you're qualified to answer those questions. Right. But but unsolicited is is the key here. And, you know, in Canada, we don't have any laws or even rules related to this in many cases. You know, other places like some of the states of Australia, um, you know, it's, it's actually illegal to bring this up if it's unsolicited. But in Canada, we, it, it's open. I do not believe from an ethical point of view, there could be a few exceptions to this, but that it should ever be brought, brought up if it's unsolicited. It sounds like advice, and with vulnerable people, uh, it's not the right thing to do.
0: Veterans Affairs have clearly uh, already apologized for this and recognized that it was a grave mistake. Uh, does that go far enough for you?
1: Yeah, but what's to say it's not going to happen again? And, you know, what, what we're really seeing here is, is beyond veterans, um, there's a large pattern that's been surfacing, you know, as, as the laws related to medical assistance and dying have expanded of the question of vulnerability. And I think a lot of people, including me to some extent, I don't think I'm the worst offender, uh, were fairly naive or quite naive actually in the early days of medical assistance and dying. Many people thought we can really parcel off vulnerability. We can ask key questions, we can do great assessments, and we're not gonna have to worry about vulnerability. And when I say vulnerability, I'm talking about poverty, I'm talking about mental illness, I'm talking about anxiety, depression, all of those types of things. We can control for that. Well, you know what? We're not doing a very good job of it. Um, Look at the cases that are emerging. And now we're receiving international attention in a negative way, including the United Nations. And, you know, I, I think we really have to take a long, hard look nationally at the question of medical assistance and dying in relation to these levels of vulnerability.
0: Just so listeners understand, uh, this was, I believe, court mandated that the government go back to the drawing board and expand, or at least take what was existing and expand some of these, uh, those who qualified. But it, it's, it's a very tricky thing to do. And I'm wondering, I know you're not opposed to the legislation itself, uh, but it feels like it needs some refining. And and when you're talking about an issue this sensitive, refining is a tough task,
1: it's a very tough task. And although I wasn't, you know, I'm, I'm very ambivalent on this, to be honest with you. And I, I go back, you know, decades and working in end of life care. It's been a big element of my entire career. And, and you know, although I was supportive, I was always ambivalent about this. Um, and I'm still supportive, because the majority of cases are coming from people with catastrophic illnesses. That are absolutely profoundly grateful that they have this option as are their families but look that does not mean everyone and what's been happening in the last few years is is this tent of inclusion is just getting bigger and bigger and it's not over yet next year will be mental health and you know it will probably keep expanding and, and I think the many, many people that have been incredibly supportive of medical assistance in dying, it's time that many of them, including me, uh, become much more humble and say, how are we going to deal with these deep ethical questions of vulnerability? Because to simply say we can parcel it off and deal with it case by case, it does not seem to be working very well at all.
0: Uh, and, and I guess that's what we're seeing. I mean, we understood that those of us, uh, you know, the many in this country, in fact, a vast majority in this country support some form of medical assistance in dying, understanding yeah. it as you've just described it. Um, also understanding that of the courts demand under the Charter of Rights that, that these be expanded uh but it feels like it has to be done in a way that where where we understand what the downside could be. Now, the safeguards that are in place are, are are they not enough anymore? Are they not? I mean, you've mentioned it already, but are the safeguards just not effective anymore as we expand this into what you called at one point? I think a circus of inclusion.
1: Yeah, and so you know, the the, the challenge is we we value autonomy in this country very very highly as we should. So what we do is we allow patients to say, you know, what we can say to patients is, you know, we'll consider medical assistance in dying, but you need to you need to try the following cancer treatments or eventually when there's mental health inclusion, you need to try electro, you know, shock therapy or something like that. We don't do that. We 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 go on the patient's word. If a patient says I can't live with this, we accept that. And I support that. That makes a lot of sense. But it also makes things very, very difficult. Um, you know, so we, we're now looking at things like like um, long, you know, long COVID. Uh, there's applications, and I'm not, I don't doubt long COVID for one moment. I know people that have long COVID, but it's new. We don't know that much about it. We don't have a definitive diagnosis. We don't have any of these things, and you know, people living in poverty, people that can't pay their rent. Uh, this situation with veterans that have vulnerability, including brain injury. Um, I just don't think we're well prepared for that. And and so I don't think the safeguards right now are good enough, because I think most of the people that are very supportive of medical assistance and dying tend to minimize the problem. And look, then you know, I'm going to say something much larger here in which, I, I think there's a deeper social change here where, you know, the day could come when we look at someone living with some element of disability, whether they be wheelchair bound or whatever the situation may be in the future. And we think, why would they do that? Why would they continue to live in that situation? That would be a horrible thing to do. Um, you know, it it goes against the human spirit of compassion and acceptance and, and it really changes our views of vulnerability altogether. And, and that is one of the things I worry about. So I do think, you know, the national task has to be not so much how do we expand this, but how do we rethink questions of vulnerability?
0: My guest this half hour is bioethicist Kerry Bowman. He's an assistant professor in the Faculty of Medicine at the University of Toronto. Uh, we're talking about the always sensitive issue of medical assistance in dying. Kerry, uh, one of the things that struck me about this story uh, about the veteran was that medical prof- or people professionals may be offering this unsolicited advice with all good intention. But somehow the parameters of change whereby someone feels like they're in a position to do that, whereas I don't think anyone would have offered that option in any other way uh, in the past. It feels like there, there needs to be some parameters here, and perhaps the parameters haven't been clearly defined.
1: Well, I'm not sure they have, because, you know, as a medical practitioner, and I've been in this situation myself, there really is an ethical and practical and even legal obligation to offer the range of options to each and every patient in relation to treatment of what they are facing. Now, is medical assistance and dying a treatment? I think it's not. Um, I, I think it's in a very different category than that. And, you know, there's some people that feel look, it's, you know, it's available to Canadians, they have a right to it. And I agree, they do. Um, but you know, as I've said earlier, and I say it again purposely. Is you know when a professional uh, offers something, it may easily sound like a recommendation. That your situation is so grim that I need to talk to you now about this option of medical assistance in dying. Um, and I, I, you know, I, I feel that the education on the question of offering this has really been deficient. And I teach in the faculty of medicine, and I don't feel. And I'm not speaking just about my university, I'm speaking nationally, that we don't have clear uh, guidelines and ethical conversations about under what conditions should these conversations emerge. And, and you know, in many cases, who's, who's going to bring them up?
0: What now? Then I know we've had you know relatively extensive consultations on this, although there was it was fairly time constrained. I mean, we've talked about this for quite a while. Uh, again, it's about to expand in twenty twenty three. Uh, what needs to be done now?
1: You know, I'm not a fan of bureaucracy, and I think this nation has more bureaucracy than we need, to be honest with you. But you know, we we may need independent and third party committees um, that are much more arm's length. Uh, to be looking at these types of questions. And, and you know, what right now we're looking at mental health as we should be. Um, we're looking at mature minors as we should be. These, these, are, these are laden with ethical questions. Um, you know, but I also think we, we really have to go back and relook at, at are there ways, are there situations that we can rethink vulnerability? And I use that word very broadly, as I said earlier in the interview. You know, psychological, economic, social, racial, all those things, homelessness, all of those things.
0: Because I guess the ethical question here is that if Canadians have the right to medical assist, assistance in dying, when does that right uh, come into play and when does it not? Right. I mean, when, who decides when you can use that Right.
1: Well, and you know, and and we're struggling with that. And I think on a medical front, we're, we're probably making much better progress. <clears throat> Where we're not making progress is I can't pay my rent because I'm too sick to work. Therefore, I'm requesting medical assistance and dying. The ethics of that, I, you know, a person that has an acquired brain injury, such as we're talking about now with the veterans, who also might be, uh, might be struggling with anxiety and depression. You know, is it not loaded if, if someone makes this as, as an option? Does that not potentially sound like a recommendation? If someone has homelessness, if someone, you know, uh, has all of these things, and that's what we're really not taking the harder look at. And, um, you know, again, I think when we naively thought we could get through this with really good assessments, and
0: I don't think we can. Does the politics of it all concern you at all?
1: Well, it does. And I, you know, what I would say, and remember, I'm a person that supported this, you know, (sighs) Early on, the the real opponents of this said the problem is, you know, once this is legalized, we're going back now. Oh, I'm forgetting my years here. uh, 2016, 17. Mm -hmm. Sorry, I'm forgetting. I I could be slightly wrong on that. It's kind of becoming a bit of a blur. You know, what will happen after this is legalized is it will just keep expanding and expanding. And, you know, uh, that that's that's all there will be. And, you know, to some extent, they were Right. And you know the other thing that concerns me is is I'm not saying we need a, a you know a police witch hunt on this, but after someone has been approved, there's not much in terms of an analysis of how all of that came to be. It, it's still pretty open and unexamined.
0: So what would be a, a good first step at this point then, do you think?
1: Well, I think what's happening now is that we have a larger national debate about that. That's why I'm actually very glad to see that these stories are, are surfacing. And, you know, these are tough times with a pandemic and a war in Europe and all the things we know about. But, but you know, and and if we hadn't had a pandemic and, and you know, war in Ukraine, probably I would argue this would have had a much stronger focus on the national stage in our country than it has had. That has been part of it. It's, it got overshadowed with big, big, complex, you know, geopolitical issues and pandemics. Um, I think we need a national debate and, you know, we, we may need some more independent task force to take a look at the question of vulnerability uh, in a much, much deeper way. The problem is we're a bit polarized on this. There's people that, that say it from a rights point of view, and I fully understand that. And there's people, you know, some, not all in the disability, the community that say, you know, this is very problematic. And remember, even the United Nations has weighed in on this. And we've got other countries watching us now in terms of, you know, is this progressive legislation or is it not? Um, and, you know, the problem, too, is, is the more difficult cases are getting a lot of, of media attention, I don't really see a problem with that because I think they're legitimate, but but we do need to remember that the vast majority of cases, you have complete and utter consent and autonomy of the individual person, um, in many cases, their families, and there really is not an element of vulnerability. So you don't want those people to lose their rights either.
0: Kerry Bowman, we'll leave it at that, but what a, you know, as always, a debate uh, conversation worth having. Thank you so much for weighing in on it tonight.
1: You're very welcome. Happy to do so.